Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Catherine May. Welcome to the Wintering Sessions. It is quarter to nine on a beautiful blue sky June morning. My son has just headed off to school. The birds are singing and I'm walking down to the beach for a swim. I love mornings like this. (laughs) I love it when the tide's up just after school drop off. Morning swims. I was about to say are my favourite, but actually evening swims are my favourite, particularly sunset swims. But anyway, I like these. So I'm walking down in my towel poncho, something you can do when you live in a seaside town without raising too many eyebrows, I think, I hope. And I'm going to go for a lovely early morning swim. The weather hasn't been so good yet this year. It's coming up the solstice the longest day and normally by now I'll have had a few nights on the beach having some food maybe a little glass of wine and just generally hanging out as the sun goes down coming home in the dark such a lovely thing to do with kids because eventually the stars come out if they stay up long enough. It just hasn't been warm enough for one of those yet. The weather seems to be so disrupted everywhere. I just came back from a little holiday in the Azores 
And there it was unseasonally cold. Whereas my mum, who lives in Spain, says it's been ridiculously hot. Everything's changing. I've just realised, of course, that not only am I walking through the streets in a towel poncho, I'm also talking into a big furry microphone. I'm getting a few askance. Look, I just can't think why. So anyway, I've got yearnings for nights on the beach. But these beautiful summer mornings that make it so easy to swim without having to worry about taking loads of kit or necessarily getting out of your swimming costume as soon as you swum are just such a gift. I love winter swimming, as you know, but there's something about the ease and luxury of those summer swims that reinvigorates your passion all over again. I've made it onto the beach now, as you can probably hear. The tide is high and it's a lovely greeny blue today. Not quite the full high summer blue. We're still a little bit choppy. There's a breeze. Can't wait to get in. <laughs> so I'm really here to introduce you to this week's guest, Simon Mir, who, after a long career as a journalist, has turned her hand to novel writing. And what a novel and what an impact. She's going to talk a bit about the Khan, which I think I probably mispronounce. I do my best, you know, I'm willing, has just, you know, swept the boards everywhere and really reinvented the crime syndicate novel. I just really couldn't wait to get the chance to interview her on the wintering sessions because I know she's someone who has lived about a dozen lives, really, and who's endlessly had to steel herself to reinvent and to dig her fingernails into her palms and find the confidence to carry on. And, you know, when you watch people like that living their life, it's so wonderful when they start to truly, truly flourish. Anyway, you're going to love her. She's brilliant. She's funny and she's smart and she's hard as nails. I'm going to get in the water. I'll see you a little later. Saima, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. It's amazing to have you here. And I, I don't know, like, is it bad to say I feel so proud of you for how your novel has been doing? I don't think I've got the right to feel proud, but I'm right behind you. It's amazing. <laughs> I think you do, because we've known each other for a while, haven't we? When we, we have. Maternal Rage, when I wrote the Maternal Rage essay. So I yeah. feel like we sort of know each other, but don't, because we've not met physically. No, no. 
It's one of those funny online relationships. But yeah, because you wrote the amazing essay uh, that everybody always talks to me about when they've read The Best Most Awful Job about what it's like, that that kind of rage where you're pushing your fingernails into your palms when you've got small children. And, you know, I think it just struck a note for all of us. And I think that tells us something very early on about you, which is that you're willing to say stuff that other people would shy away from saying, but which is completely true and recognisable when you say it. Yes. Yeah. There's, uh, I always joke that it's like I flash the world. Um, (laughs) but but for me I don't want to write about anything if it doesn't connect with somebody for me the process of writing is to make other people feel seen and heard you know sort of like I'm going through this are you going through it too and then so people read it and they're they're like oh god yeah I'm not weird I'm not strange I'm normal this is perfectly normal even though everybody else has been telling me it's not Uh, It matters so much, yeah. That's why I write and that's the joy of it. Mm. Because I felt alone for such a long time and I've been in situations where I've been like, I'm completely nuts. Am I going nuts? (laughs) Am I the only one who feels like this? Um, So yeah, that's why I write. And that essay did seem to strike a chord, didn't it? With so many people. Yeah, because I do, I think the, those times in parenthood when you are feeling like that fury that drops into you that isn't aimed at your kids you know like I we were only able to talk about the idea that that might be a terrible dangerous thing but actually most of us are busy suppressing that all of the time and I think that's why we need to talk about it to each other because that's the only way it gets released really I agree I absolutely agree it's not my children who are the source of it no. Um, but they're the or ones the, or the object of it or the subject or the object of it, of it sorry yeah. yeah it's sort of it's everything else around motherhood and parenthood mm. that I feel like I didn't know and I don't know if I was complicit in it by not knowing it before I had children I'm not sure about yeah I'm not figured out whether it was but it's just the disrespect that's heaped upon women all the stuff around um, maternity pay and childcare costs I've also been thinking about this a lot, I'm probably going off on a tangent, but how um, as women, we were told we could have everything. Mm -hmm. And then I realized actually, even men didn't do everything and have everything. They had an army of women doing all the stuff in the background. And as women, why did I think I could do it all when men weren't doing it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we were always told that they were doing everything. And now I look at, I don't know, I look at the kind of traditional successful man And I think how indulged he was, you know, like how looked after and catered for when we're going out, like doing the whole damn lot. And it's no wonder we're tired. Absolutely. And I feel as if we did a disservice to ourselves where instead of raising the importance of what was traditionally women's work, the work that women did, we sort of thought, oh, we're going to aspire to the work that men do. And I'm not saying we should not do that because I think we should and we should have access to it but I think it was a raising of the status of the work that those women were doing that hasn't been done until now and I think we've Mm. only just started talking about it I think it's when we do that and and men are taught the importance of the work that those women are doing at home um, that things have changed yeah, absolutely. But I I feel like you know that from both sides more than most people. Because when I was prepping for this interview, I was going back to, to old articles that I've read before. But um, I was reading back about your first marriage. 
and indeed your second marriage, both like quite traditional marriages in lots of ways. And I was just thinking about how far you've traveled and how different your life must be. But but maybe we can go back and tell the story of that a little because, you know, you you were married when you were 19. I met my first husband when I was 19. I was married when I was 21. And there's not okay. much in it. There's not, yeah. <laughs> not much in it. But when you're 19, it feels like it. But yeah, 19, I was 21. Yeah. And I come from a, um, a British Pakistani family. About 90% of the women in my family are graduates. So, mm. you know, I come from an educated family. I had a really nice childhood. My parents had an arranged marriage. They were cousins, which happened culturally quite a lot, and they mm. loved each other. And so I never questioned this idea of marriage, like having an arranged marriage. And so I was just sort mm. of oblivious. I feel like I want to go back and shake myself. And think, what were you doing? You were just in this bubble of niceness. I was reading Anna <laughs> Gables and I was reading chalets, all these books and little women. And then I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have this. And so I got married to this guy who was a doctor and I'd met him literally once before I married him and and that was a norm in my culture yeah yeah and it didn't work and three months later I so I moved to Mississippi I should say finished university graduated didn't really bother much with my degree because I thought I was going to get married and be this doctor's wife and I don't know what I was thinking and then I moved to Mississippi and it uh, three months later I came back because it was really strange I was Mm. miserable I don't think I knew quite what had happened, but I knew it was awful and it was wrong and I shouldn't be there. My parents seemed to know. So they sort of said, my grandmother, I remember said to my mum, make sure she brings back all her wedding jewellery. Wedding jewellery was a big thing in my life. She knew, I think my grandmother was wise enough and had seen enough in life to know that this is wrong. You're in this really weird situation where his mother was, well, a bigger part of the marriage than you were, I think. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I don't really talk about it much because I can't remember it. I'm now 47. Um, <laughs> yeah. Grand old lady that you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that it was such a long time ago now that I yeah. think, and I don't want to do a disservice to the situation and mm, sort of say mm. things that I can't really clearly remember, but I remember the feeling of it being awful. And yeah. his mother lived with us and I never got to go anywhere. I was just basically in this house all day, cooking and cleaning and just sitting mm. on the sofa waiting for him to come home from the hospital where he worked. And yeah. then his mum would be with me and we would all sit on the sofa together, the three of us next to each other, him in the middle, watching television. <laughs> and then it would be bedtime. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it's really weird. And he, he did things like he measured the distance between the speakers and the TV. That's one thing I really remember. Um, <laughs> to be optimal. Well, I don't know. I've got a very audiophile husband. He'll, he will not even raise an eyebrow at that. He'll be like, yes, of course yeah. you'll do that. <laughs> I, know. Things like that which I don't really know enough about to say. But it, it just struck you as off. Yeah. It was, it was odd and I wasn't happy. And I think I was getting quite depressed. Because I, I, I sort of, and um, I came back and when I told him, when my parents sort of spoke to him, he said, my mum's not happy. My mum's got enmity towards her. And I, and I think she was some mm. woman in her 70s or whatever, 60s, 70s. And I was 21 year old. So it was weird. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I got divorced. And at that time, women from my background didn't get divorced. If you were a nice girl from a nice, educated uh, Pakistani household, you didn't mm. do that. You just didn't. and. I was there and I'd sort of like done this thing. And so I was a bit of a pariah. I mean, I was a pariah. I sort of like, I didn't know what to do. And it felt like the world was ending. 
What stuff um, made you feel like a pariah? Like did, did people make comments or was it more diffuse than that? Yes. So things like um, people would ask me things because I, obviously I, I'd been married for three months, which meant I'd had a sexual relationship. Um, right. And so people couldn't accept that. There was a thing where I was suddenly tainted because I'd had sex. Mm. I'd got mm. married. I mean, I don't know what they thought I was going to be doing. But um, <laughs> they would ask me things. I'd have people come and they'd, they'd say things like, where did he kiss you? And I can't accept that this has happened because it was such a big deal wow. to have had wow. this thing happen to this young woman who, mm. you know, it's sort of like, this doesn't happen to us kind of thing. Um, and I felt tainted and I felt sullied. And I remember standing in the shower and scrubbing myself clean. Mm. Um, and I had shame, great shame associated with it because I'd had this grand wedding. It's so, it's so weird, isn't it? All the, all the stuff weird. that like, I don't know that downloads with marriage. I mean, I got married quite young and it like, for me, that was the transgressive thing. Like, you know, different cultural norms. I think people saw me as having like thrown myself away too early, you know, whereas I was, I was more expected to go and play the field through my twenties and and maybe settle down later. So it's kind of the opposite expectations. But what really shocked me was how people treated me differently after, you know, that that marriage ceremony. I mean, it, it, nothing had changed, you know, but everything changed. It was shocking. That's how I feel. I feel like nothing. And now I look back on it and I think that was three months of my life. And it was a, mm. in the grand scheme of how my life how long it might end up. Three months is nothing. Tiny, yeah. But it completely changed the way people looked at me and talked to me. Mm. My family, they were naive. I mean, my mum and dad were young and they were naive and they'd never been through anything like that. And they wanted the best for me, but I don't think they knew what to do. You know, when you're suddenly the talk of the town, um, your child is the talk of the town. And so they, somebody else kind of proposed and they were like, yeah, this is the way to do it. This is just marry her off and it'll be all right. There's a solution. There's a solution. It'll be as if that thing never happened. She'll be over it. Nobody, because nobody, even therapy wasn't a thing um, that people talked about, even in kind of Western zones. It wasn't, it was sort of something that Woody Allen did on a movie. Oh my God. Therapy is so recent in the UK. I don't think Americans listening will understand just how recent therapy has come to the UK and, you know, on any level. And the idea that you might do it as somebody who wasn't in complete crisis, it's just, it's very alien to us still culturally. (laughs) I'm laughing about it and I feel like I'm in this um, bit of a black comedy and sometimes my sisters (laughs) measure time by my first wedding, second wedding and third wedding and it's like, yeah, do you remember that time? So I got married to a guy who was only a couple of years older than me and the opposite of my first husband. My first husband was very calm and controlled and um, very proper and this, and he was about 10, 11 years older than me. And my second husband was about a year and a half, two years older. He was just like full of life, the zest of life. Yeah. And he just thought everything was funny and a joke and it was just, he was just living and like, you know, sucking the juice out of life and having this time and I just thought okay I'll try this and I know that sounds terrible I feel like I was just throwing my life away but he said he said to me because I was reluctant and he said what's stopping you he said to me that I will if anything like what happened to you before happened I'll stand by you You Mm. I'll take a stand for you and I was blown away by the fact and this is how low my standards were (laughs) that he was willing to accept me having no, knowing that I'd been married to somebody else before, just for three months. Like right. this guy must be great and his family must be great. And they presented as a, a nice family. 
Mum was a teacher, his dad had been a banker, he was a banker, they were all sort of, you know, they yeah. all lived, this was in the UK, and so I said to my parents, I don't want to live with his mum and dad, and his parents said, look, it's only going to be a year or so, and then they can move out and get their own place, and I was 23 at the time, and he was 24, 25, so we were young, we were in London. Yeah, still so young, really. So young. Yeah. If you think that the human brain apparently doesn't sort of fully form until you're 25, Mm. 24 you're still making rash decisions um, yeah so we got married I, I don't think you I mean you know people say youth is lost on the young but, but I don't think it's even that I think it's that when you are young you don't have any context to how young you are yes and you feel really grown up yes yeah and then you look back on your 20s now and you just think my God, I knew nothing about anything. Yes, and it's, yes. it's shocking. Like, how was I allowed to make financial decisions? <laughs> I think it's because nothing's bookended. You're yeah. not bookended. I feel as if now my life, I can see in the future at some point, you know, there's going to be an end to it. And I feel that. But it wasn't like that in my 20s. I was just there doing mm, whatever. Mm. It was going to go on forever. Time was infinite. Absolutely. And, I, I mean, I'm sure there are 70 year olds listening to this going, God, they sound naive, you know. Yeah. How young they are. Yeah, totally. I'm well aware. Rolling their eyes at us right now. Yes. I'm so, but the thing, the difference I think is now that I'm aware that those 70 year olds are quite rightly rolling their eyes at me. Whereas in my 20s, I would be like, no, I know everything there is to know. And, you know, I'm going to do it so much better than those people in there. 40s or whatever and God, they're ancient look at those those women in their 40s they're just gonna drop off the edge um yeah yeah I know. and actually I mean it's interesting that we started off talking about how motherhood is compared to how we thought it would be and actually I remember at that age looking up the ranks towards women who were my age and who were parents and thinking how kind of compromised they were and how boring and mm-hmm. how convinced I was that I wouldn't do it the same so so there we have it Yes, absolutely. I completely, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand how hard and draining and exhausting motherhood is and how Mm. it's increment. I think the thing I didn't understand was the incremental nature of the exhaustion that happens. Chips away at you. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. So anyway, sorry, I'm digressing because you were in the middle of telling us about your second marriage and I've, I've shifted you away Um, from it. Sorry. that's So I, so I got married and we lived with his parents. We lived in, um, in Essex and, Mm. um, it just was wrong from the get go. His parents were very controlling and it was sort of things like what I was, from what I was wearing to who I was seeing to, Mm. um, slowly I ended up being a complete maidservant in that house. So I did all the cooking. I did wow. all the cleaning. I ended up doing all the ironing for everybody. I don't even oh do that gosh. in my own house now. I mean, I'm <laughs> Shake iron. it out and put it on the hanger, honestly. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, you do Everybody's clothes. Um, and I remember things like if I went to my parents for the weekend, I remember coming back and his dad said, taking me aside and saying, when you leave, you need to make sure there's enough food cooked for the weekend for for us. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. Out or bring, taking me to the fridge and so showing me some cheese that had gone moldy and saying, you should have thrown that cheese away. And why or why <laughs> didn't I say to that man, well, why didn't you throw that cheese yeah, away? Throw why your is own that cheese, cheese my responsibility? Away. Yeah. Handle your own cheese. 
some of us have got our own stuff to handle. But that, you know, that is interesting to me because I can't, like knowing you now as you are, I can't imagine you not saying, throw away your own cheese, mate. I, it's <laughs> such a huge change in you. Because my, my, my current husband, as I refer to him, um, says the same thing. <laughs> the same thing as you said. He said, I don't know that woman you describe. I only yeah. know you the way you are, who would yeah. not take. I don't know if I can swear on it. Yeah, yeah, no, swear away, it's fine. You know, you just wouldn't take shit from anyone. You'd just be like, uh, yeah, actually, when I think back to that time, I don't know what I, why I was so scared, but I was scared. I was physically afraid of those people. I mean, no one hit Mm. me. There was no, like, physical violence. There wasn't anything like that. But the coercive control and the kind of emotional abuse of a situation that's drip, drip. And also because I was raised with this disease to please. I was just supposed Mm. to be nice and I thought that if I was nice to everybody and if I just could do the absolute right thing yeah it would be to make everybody happy with you and of course it had all gone wrong before as well and I guess I imagine you just felt like you couldn't afford for a second thing to go wrong yes second marriage I I should say not a thing sorry (laughs) yeah it was it's the whispers of society there are little whispers that come, which is you need to deal with this because you've got sisters. And if you don't kind of show yourself to be a good yeah. daughter-in-law and a good wife, then who's going to marry your sisters? Um, right. This is how it is. And mm. uh, I was, you know, I was told things like I wasn't raised properly. I didn't know how to be. And I believed yeah. it because it was so incremental and my self-esteem was chipped away and destroyed. And by the end of two and a half years that I was there, I just thought I was worthless. Mm. And it's actually so much of what you write is about gossip and the effect of gossip and the way that your reputation can be manipulated by others and and the whispers of, of like often older women who judge younger women really harshly. Yes. Um, mm. I think it's it's soul-destroying. And also, one of the things for me coming from this culture was that, you know, when you're the child in an, of an immigrant, in an immigrant community, from an immigrant community, the pool is small that you belong to. Yeah, you're very visible. You're very visible. And mm. after I left that second marriage, I was literally shunned. I mean, I would go to events where people wouldn't speak to me. And, mm, um, that's horrifying friends of mine who who had grown up with I feel because they thought I'd left two perfectly good men you know one was a doctor and one was a banker right and these were if you think in the pool of marriage marital pool arranged marriage kind of thing um mm. these were like two good guys I'd literally taken out two good guys by the time I was 25 <laughs> in their opinion you know and people said things to me like well we put up with it why couldn't you right and superficially I was given the trappings of life so you know a car he bought me a car or took me on these holidays or bought me a Mm. diamond diamond rings and it was things like but those things come at a cost and the cost is my soul and my self-confidence and my mental well-being and they're his way of making himself feel better about having shouted at me Mm. um Mm. you know they're they're almost the instruments of control aren't they they're the ways that not only you're controlled by it but also it's like a 
a, a, an external demonstration to the people who are not party to the dark bits of the marriage that everything's perfect, actually. It, it sort of weighs against the truth that you can tell. Yes, it's abs- they are absolutely the instruments of control. That's exactly the phrase. Um, it's almost like you, they're sort of stuffing those things in your mouth so you can't speak. It's just mm. the silencing of you. And my ex-husband was a very... He was very big on public displays of affection. So when we were at events, you know, he would be mouthing the words that I love you across a room. And people <laughs> Sorry, it's hard not to laugh at that. It's really yeah, like, wow. He adored me. One of the things I don't see people talking about is the addiction of that kind of abuse that the receiver of it, I don't, mm. I don't know victim, I don't know if victims are very good, but the receiver of it becomes, and I, I think I was addicted to that high and low of that marriage Mm, mm. because when I met my husband my now husband who's a lovely normal person where everything's on an even keel I almost sabotaged that marriage and that relationship by thinking why is this so normal this is boring like it was boring to me when I Mm. met him and the only reason I think I managed to get past my own self is because I'd seen my parents in a loving relationship and I knew that's right. what I want. And I have to get out of my own way to get mm-hmm. there. It's almost like I had to detox because my husband doesn't, we don't like have raging rows. Yeah. I mean, he can be a bit passive aggressive. <laughs> and I'm like, what did you say? <laughs> like, all right, I'll talk about it now. <laughs> We've all been there, but, don't worry. <laughs> but the, you know, there was no like in your face, rah, rah, rah. Yeah. And that had become my norm. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. I'm guessing you've been following the the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial very closely in that case, because it seems to me that those conversations have been really ignited again. And it's it's fascinating to see lots of commenters say, you know, she can't possibly be have been abused because 
there's a whole list of things that, you know, that, that seems to be coming out. Like, why did nobody ever see any bruises? Why did she keep going back for more? Why was she contributing to the anger? And it's like, wow, we still really don't have a popular understanding of how abusive relationships work at all. No, I don't think, I, and I think one of the things with these abusive relationships is the, the thing that we consider love is so far removed from what actually healthy, normal you know, positive love is that if you've been in that toxic situation, you really have to go through a process of detoxing and learning that actually this is what I want. And I was lucky because I had seen that in my own lifetime with my own parents that I knew, okay, that's what I want. But I think if I hadn't, and if I'd seen, if my parents had been in a similar relationship, I would have just stayed because that would be marriage to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's true for so many people, isn't it? That they go and and replicate the the same patterns over and over again because they have no way of knowing any better. Yes. And I think a lot of the judgment now, when I look back at the judgment that came from other people, it was from people who had never seen healthy relationships and kind of the culture I came from. My husband has also come from a healthy, his parents similar to Mm. mine. We have a very similar background, which is purely coincidental. Or maybe not. Maybe that's why you're attracted to each other. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's why he put up with my madness for a while. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, we t- he talks about this as well, about how rare it was for us to see uh, couples who were who loved each other and were kind to each other and respectful in the backgrounds that we came from, because we came from this culture of arranged marriage where people just stayed together. They were, you know, it was survival, I guess, and it was there were immigrant families and there were, it was a different time and, you know, yeah. it was completely different, but that's well, why I, perpetuated and talked about. Yeah. Really. I, but I, I don't think that just kind of Pakistani marriages should take that, should carry the can there because I think when I grew up, you know, white Western marriages that I saw were often incredibly unequal. Mm. The men were, I don't know, just often served and were allowed to make really unreasonable demands and women did a lot of kind of biting their tongue and keeping quiet because you kept the peace yeah and that was not you know that was not seen as like rare or a difficult marriage that was just what marriage was it's what you were supposed to do wasn't it because we were just they were bringing in the money in those kind of generations we had no women had no financial power and that work that the men were doing was considered so much more valuable because it was Mm. financially remunerated you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. And I, you know, I think we are so close to those times and we're still, I'm still surprised how many people's relationships I see that in, you know, the idea that you don't say no to your husband, you don't challenge or disrupt him. You know, you just go off with your girlfriends and and talk about it between you and complain about it. Yes, yeah, totally. How dare we kind of get them to talk about it? My husband and I often joke because he avoids, he's a conflict avoider. And yep. <laughs> um, I'm someone who's like, as I said, flashing the world. Look at this. What's going on? Oh my God, look at me. Look what I did. That's wrong with me. And he says that he's got this carpet that he used to, emotional carpet that he'd hide things under. And he said, you're always making me lift that rug up and have a look underneath it. <laughs> I don't want leave to my deal. rug alone. <laughs> yeah, leave my, leave my rug alone. Oh. Why do you always make me face things? Um <laughs> That's so funny. I, we have a very similar dynamic. <laughs> very, very similar. 
<laughs> just leave things alone, you know. And I'm like, no, every stone must be turned over. We must yeah. analyze this. <laughs> no, yeah. And I'm, I'm really lucky because he understands the value of it. I think my husband is that generation that's kind of on the cusp, was on the cusp of, so he was raised with this idea of equality and feminism for women. And, but he was raised in a family where it was still, his dad was a traditional breadwinner and his mum did the right. house stuff. And yeah. so when he went to university and it, he's, you know, very, he wouldn't even use the word feminism because he said, well, that's just good sense, isn't it? It should just be mm, how it is. Mm. But I think, no, he wasn't really taught how to be an ally. So his emotional needs were, I am an ally and I'll be there. And he's massively supportive, but I feel like right. I had to teach him. You actually have to do laundry in order to be my ally. And you have to. <laughs> it's not yeah. just enough that you're okay with everything else and you know you're yeah. my biggest champion but these are the practical aspects of allyship that you need to do and he was never yes. taught us we are in this process of change and I think I think it's invisible to us the work of change that we're all doing in personal relationships but when I look back over you know my 45 years of life I can't fathom the level of change in our expectations, the genuine change. Not Like I remember the point when I was like reading about the possibility of women living the lives that we're living and, yes. you know, the possibility that we could rebalance things, but it seemed very distant and people weren't sure if it was possible. Like even, even the people that wanted it weren't sure if it was possible. And now I think, God, we've changed. We've changed so much and so fast. I said something to someone the other day and I said, I am my childhood's wildest dream. Mm, mm. And I think that sums it up. I have come so far from yeah. the kind of child that I was, who was afraid of everything, who didn't want to upset the status quo, but was reading all these fascinating things about strong women and about the civil rights movement in the US. Mm. Um, and somehow those foundations were being laid and then yeah. life happened to now where I am in this situation where I've been on a book tour with the Khan and my husband has had the boys for five days and alone and I have never had the boys alone for five days I've got three boys and that's not it's not even a question it's not even a I didn't yeah, ask yeah, yeah you know it's like he's like well of course you're going to do this of course I'm going to do this I'm going to make it work um yeah, there's amazing. no discussion of well, who's going to leave me? You know, there's no put the mouldy cheese in the bin. It's like, well, <laughs> don't worry about the mouldy cheese. I'll buy more cheese. You go on your book tour. Don't worry about the points. It'll be fine. Um, the cheese is under control. <laughs> the cheese is, the cheese is, there is no importance to this cheese. It's about you. And so I am my, I am my own wildest dream. And I think I'm still processing. It's been a, an interesting week. I was the Times bestseller on Saturday. I congratulations it's extraordinary and so I mean it's such a great book I mean it's an obviously great book so it should be but it hasn't always happened to I mean you say brown writers you know you've been told in the past that they don't sell and it's not true they don't sell who's going to read this book Mm. and so the fact that my life is so vastly different you know if you think that when I was 27 so I was 25 I was twice divorced and I was 27 and I started working at my local paper and and the reason I did the things I did is because I thought my life was over I thought that's it I'm never going to get married I'm never going to have children I screwed this up Mm. and so now I'm just going to live on my own terms and it's not that I did anything particularly 
you know, radical in the grand scheme of things, but from the background that I came from, just saying that and just saying no as a a people Mm. pleaser who was just saying yes to everybody, just to drawing boundaries and saying, actually, no. But I I mean, I, I know you don't think it's anything exceptional you did, but I think loads of people would not have felt permission to go and start a career as a journalist, even at that stage. You know, they'd have they'd have waited for someone to make it okay for them or they would have waited forever but you you approached it very differently you you obviously still believed enough that you were worth it despite all that had happened by then yes I think I must have done I mean I I just know that I realized and I still believe this and I still say this to anybody who asks me no one is going to give us permission as women as women of color as mothers or any of those things Mm. um, and even men you know, if you're doing something that's slightly different, no one is going to give us permission to do something that's new and, and that's radical. And we just have to go and do it and let the world catch up, which yeah. is what I've seen. You know, I've been, even as a journalist, um, I left the BBC 12 years ago. I was thinking about this the other day. I was trying to send out my showreel, which I look at now and I think it was a great showreel. You know, I was young, <laughs> I was attractive, I was slim. And, and I just... <laughs> I was in the wilderness. There was just nothing. Nobody was interested yeah. in my work and I couldn't sell my book. And I'd been this social pariah culturally. And now I was this sort of felt like I was out in the cold as a mm. journalist. And I had lost a little bit of faith in myself and self-belief, but I knew that nobody was going to give me permission. And I just was going to take what I needed and just to get there. And I, yeah. my, my agent said this to me yesterday. She said, you've all said I'm buckled in for the ride. I'm going to do the work. <laughs> I yeah that's it I that's that's what I kind of think over and over again you know like I honestly spent years with a very very unpromising writing career but I kept going back to it just because putting my head down and working is what I know how to do yeah. and also because I wanted it yes. and it, it seemed to me that I was allowed that simple leaning towards something that's all it was like it wasn't anything more than that I mean I when I used to talk to people about it I used to get weird reactions like well who made you believe that you were allowed that almost like who who do you think you are yeah it is it comes down to who do you think you are to to want that in the first place and I used to think well it's it's nothing to want it you know it's not it doesn't mean anything it just means that I want it like that's the that's the most basic building block of this it's no more than that it's quite humble in a way I want to make work I want to make work I um I also have discovered through achieving various strange things in life that the joy really is in the work Mm. you know it's I'm sounds like I'm saying my diamond shoes are too tight but I don't mean that (laughs) it's, it's great having the time say oh you're a times bestseller it's wonderful Mm, mm. but that moment lasts it literally lasts a moment but the work when you're sitting there and it's coming together and it's happening Mm. and you're lost in it that's actual joy that's such a luxury isn't it so yeah yeah. and I and I I know that so the sort of the rest of it is it's sort of like you know, it's on the sides. Yes, it's wonderful. And it means that I get paid to do that work. And I have the privilege of saying I'm a writer because Mm, mm. publishing houses now come to me and say, will you write for us? But, um, (laughs) which is quite nice, which is lovely. (laughs) Yeah. Because now when people say, well, who do you think you are? I can say, well, I'm Simon Mayer. And, you know, this is what I've done. (laughs) I think that who do you think you are is really fascinating because I think it's just by being us and 
committing to a dream, we mm. shake the structures of those other people because they're not committing to it. They're not brave enough. And yeah. it's almost like we're a mirror and they're looking at us and thinking they see themselves as not mm-hmm. being strong enough to do what they really wanted. That's what upsets them. The people only ever talk to you about themselves. Honestly, I think you learn this over and over again. All the things that have stung me most when I look back on them were all about other people's lack of confidence and self-belief and sense of permission to to do the thing that they wanted to do and I I, I forgive them for that like I don't it's got nothing to do with me it's not it's not about me at all that's it I've just sat down and written stuff that's all I've done yes people see the world as they are not as it is that's what they say isn't it and I, and I find mm. Twitter fascinating for that if you ever write a message on Twitter and just say anybody help me with x y and z and the plethora of responses that come back sometimes, and I think you've not read that message, you've just seen something in it about you, or yeah. um, you yeah. felt attacked. I've not attacked you, but you felt attacked because something mm. within you is making you feel that way. Yeah. That's yeah. that's actually, yeah, that's the lesson I've, one of the great lessons of life I've learned is that I always used to think it was about me. What's wrong with me? Why is <laughs> me? Why are they being that? No, it's got nothing to do with me. It's to do no. with them. It's it's what's wrong with the world and how do we change it and how do we create a new one that makes this stuff easy for the people who want it? Yes. That's that's the big question, I think. So yeah. you, you created this character in Gia who is, I think, is so much of you, but is also... I mean, obviously very different, has a very different family background and a very and makes a different set of decisions. And in many ways is actually weirdly more compromised than than you ended up being, I guess. Let's talk about her a little bit. Tell tell for those who haven't read your book yet, which I think is a dwindling number of people, frankly, but um <laughs> <laughs> tell us about her. <laughs> I love Jia Khan. So Jia Khan is a, a barrister. Uh, in London. So she's living this very luxury lifestyle. She grew up in the north of England in this fictional town. And she's from a British Pakistani background. She's Pashtun. And she, her father is a criminal kingpin. And uh, when her father is killed and her brother kidnapped, she gets drawn back into this underworld. She's estranged. She's got a a husband who she's not seen in 16 years Mm. and a son. And she's just been living this kind of life away from everything she grew up with. And yeah, I just think she she was fascinating to write and I absolutely love her. Yeah, because she's so, I mean, she's competent in a way that I could never aspire to be. <laughs> I was saying, I was on a panel the other day and I said, she's basically, you know, when you something happens to you and you don't know what to say and then you're in the shower the next morning and then you think that's what I should have said. She is competent in that way that we she are in, said the it in the first place. But in that moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but she, what you unpack. Yeah, yeah. Self-control and self, like poise, I think is the word I'm yeah. looking for, which I think loads of us dream of having and, and struggle to attain. But what you use her to unpack is a Muslim community that I don't think white British people understand necessarily that is complex and interconnected and has shades of moral black and white rather than a kind of flat belief system um, and which is kind of in profound flux, I think. 
Yes, I think absolutely. That's exactly how it is. It's this idea that we are somehow homogenous and we're all the same is yeah. um, something that I've never seen growing up. And I've never mm. seen it. They've never seen the nuance of being from these backgrounds in books before. Because uh, we are no, two different No, me neither. Things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there's always this thing about which cricket team do you support? And it's like, well, I don't like cricket, so I don't support my son or, you know, British English cricket team. And <laughs> there's lots of us who don't. Yeah, there's lots of us who don't. And because actually we are something in the middle, we are completely mm. different. Culturally, one of the things that I have come to be okay with and accept and, and like about myself is that I am something in the middle. I am a bit of a mutation and there's lots of us. And mm. as mutations go, we all have different bits of the cultures that we come from and the culture we were raised in that make us us. And actually it's wonderful. We're not, we don't have to be one or the other. That's the beauty of living in the now. Mm. And, it, and that's how evolution happens. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to talk about that and how Jia Khan isn't a Pakistani woman and she's not purely, she doesn't have the same life as a white English woman, but she mm. has some of the sensibilities of it and the trappings of it. Um, yeah. And she still has some of the code of the kind of Pashtun and Pakistani heritage that she was raised in. And she's mm. forged this new thing. And because she's a bit of a disruptor, She's having to take the rest of some of the rest of her people with her and why that's yeah. okay. And I'm guessing she's going to be part of a long series of books now, right? <laughs> yeah, so there's a sequel. I've been, I signed a deal for a sequel. Um, so I'm working on that. I don't know if there's going to be a long series of books, maybe three. <laughs> Literally, this is like discussions that are ongoing because it's so exciting that it's being well received. It's, um, it's Waterstone's Thriller of the Month. And it was yeah. a time to back. So for a book that publishers didn't know what to do with, it suddenly, you know, <laughs> readers like it and they want more. So we'll see. I think it's amazing. And I think it's just you doing what you've always done, which is forging a completely different way through that, uh, that no one's dared to, to tread before. Yes. Yeah. Flashing the world, as I said. So. <laughs> that's so funny Saima thank you that was uh just such a joy to talk to you and I think people will find you so inspirational honestly I think uh, I think people will be listening and cheering you on thank you so much for having me it's been such a pleasure ah thank you hello swim glow here we've got a falling tide it's just beginning to retreat from the beach I'm drying off a bit in the sun that's another thing you can't do in the winter it is so often the case that my friends and I who swim together really have to drag ourselves down here. I mean, I don't mean like it's a chore, but we so often think that we haven't got the time. And we get onto WhatsApp and say, do you fancy a swim? And everyone will go, oh no, I've got such a busy day. And then 
every now and then one of us will say, yeah, but we won't regret it. And we'll all get in together. And it's so, so hard to make time for the stuff that's good for you, like good for your soul, not kind of good in any kind of a practical, measurable sense, but good in that it leaves you with a sense of calm and of having done something wonderful that will fire you through the rest of your day. And I know that my relaxation turns up a notch after I've been in the sea. There's a dropping of the shoulders. There's a big exhale of breath. I don't know why it's sometimes so hard to persuade myself to get down here. Here I am. I'm glad I did it. (sighs) I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you to Soma, who is just a superstar, obviously. Thank you to Megan and Buddy, who make this podcast possible. Thank you to the amazing listeners and Patreons. We have had fun this month with the Patreons doing a live chat which I now get online and do once a month and really enjoy it's so nice to be in a room of funny wonderful clever people all chatting together it's really nice do join us if you can it helps to make this podcast possible and sustainable and accessible because one of the things patreons pay for is for the podcast to be transcribed every single episode And if you didn't know that, you can always find a transcription on my website, katherinemay.co.uk forward slash wintering sessions, where you can read the podcast with all the ums and ers instead of listening. If you love it, please do give it some stars in whatever app you listen to. I know everyone begs for this, but it really helps or leave a review or share it. These things are so hard to get out there. There's no, I don't know, fixed route where you can tell everyone about your podcast. And it is a medium that is, I don't know, dominated by people who are famous. And I'm not famous. My son thinks I am. But, you know, what 10-year-olds know (laughs) is limited. Anyway, I'll stop begging. Thank you for listening. We're going to take a break over the summer, not yet, just to recharge our batteries a little. And we'll be asking you to vote for your favourite episode from season one, which we will then remaster and put out again over the summer. Because I think loads of you who are listening now didn't hear that first series. And there are some of my favourite interviews in there. So look out for that. Let us know or let us know in the comments which ones you'd like to hear again with maybe a bit more of a sparkly treatment from Buddy rather than my own homemade approach. Endearing as it was. All right, I'm going to walk home now. See you all soon.
Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.